in Romans chapter 4. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose Lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so their righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, at at first reading, this can be confusing. And yet, you have caused your word to be able to be understood because of your Holy Spirit that teaches us. And so that's what we would ask for as we, as we sit at your feet today. Will you clarify, will you teach, will you apply these words And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God helps them that helps themselves. Good, there was no amen on that one. (laughs) It was going to be awkward if there had been. Just keep doing your best. That's all God can ask of you. God is my co-pilot. Now, look, if that's on the bumper of your car, it's okay. You don't have to rush out of here afterwards and get it scraped off before you leave today or any, anything like that. And, and, and I get the sentiment of that. 
So, and I've, I don't know if it's out there in our parking lot or not, so don't, you know, I'm not picking on any particular person. That's just such a common thing. But here, here's, here's the problem with that, is that he is, he's not only not your co-pilot, you're not his co-pilot either. And it's only by grace alone, through faith, that you're even on his plane at all. Uh, Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Brian Chappell, in one of his books, calls that sola bootstrapsa. Now, we've heard all of these phrases. Uh, we, we might have grown up hearing them from our, our mom or dad. You might have told them to your kids. And there are contexts where uh, some of those are not bad things. Today, we're talking, we're talking theology and we're talking faith. And, and that's what Paul was doing to a group of people that would have loved all those phrases and that would have said, that's, that's what my salvation is. That's a description <clears throat> of how I was saved. And down through the centuries and right up to our day, there are plenty of people that struggle with how does this salvation thing work? Don't I have to to work my way to God? As we've talked about, that's what every other religion says. That's absolutely what is taught in every other culture. And, And so it's easy for us to fall into that. And for us, even if we know better, it's very easy for that to be our default button. That we think it's, it's okay, I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith, but if I'm going to stay in God's favor, I've got to work harder. And, and many struggle there. Paul is piece by piece in the book of Romans, destroying that argument. And he continues on today, and he starts with Abraham as a a real-life illustration. Look at what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Um, Paul starts with, uh, a rhetorical device. I've told you the, about reading that, that his argumentation has uh, sometimes been studied and apparently in some law schools because of how precise it was and, and how he used questions and so on. Here he uses uh, one of his favorite uh, rhetorical devices, and that is um, stating a question that is addressing an objection that he knows is there. And he's going to deal with that 
And so this is a phrase we see a good bit from Paul. What then shall we say? Now, why did he pick Abraham? Uh, you know, for us, we've got to put ourselves back in, in that day and with that audience because we don't talk about Abraham that much. And yet, the, the people he was dealing with, the Jews and the Gentiles, both uh, saw Abraham uh, certainly as a, a massive figure in their history, and for the Jew, he was considered to be the father of the Jews, still is uh, to this day. But it wasn't just because he was the father of the Jews that he picked him. There was a belief in Jesus and Paul's day, and it was basically an accepted thinking that Abraham was so good that he was justified by his works. I want to give you, I want to give you three quotes from uh, Jewish writings that would have been uh, from these days, Jesus and, and Paul's days. Um, one, one says, We find that Abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given. Second one. For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And then the third one. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance unto the righteous unto Abraham. That last one, what it's saying is, Abraham was so righteous, he, he didn't have to repent. So here we have a, a group of people basically uh, thinking and seeing Abraham as being perfect, and he, in fact, it was to them an example of how you work your way to God. And so it was, be like Abraham, which is, it's, it's purely a moralism. But uh, that was who, who Paul was addressing. Those that, that's why he brought up Abraham. Those that thought Abraham was, was saved by his works. For many Jews, there was no question that that was the case. And Paul says, no, emphatically no. It's faith alone, sola fide. He was saying that long before the Reformation. And, and he was explaining why Abraham couldn't even boast. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. So here's another rhetorical device where he's stating something that uh, isn't true, but if it were true, then here's the conclusion. And by seeing that conclusion, then, then you say, oh yeah, that can't, be, that can't be a true statement. In the previous passage, what we looked at last week, 
we saw that boasting is not appropriate for believers uh, because everything pertaining to our justification, our, our salvation was, was done by God himself. And so how could we boast about what he completed? And so he's continuing on with that line of thinking. And then he, he talks about Abraham's faith and righteousness. For what, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now here, Paul is saying the scripture shows that Abraham's faith was before any of his great works that you all recognize that he, he did. He was considered because this statement is from Genesis 15. And it's before those things that people would say, yeah, that, that proves he was, he was righteous and he was perfectly obedient and, and things like that. And there's where, in, in Genesis 15, is where God declares Abraham righteous. Not because he is good, but because of his belief. So let's fast forward to us. We have talked about the, the doctrine of imputation. And uh, so here's just a reminder uh, what that's talking about. For those who believe, who trust in Jesus Christ alone and in his work, when he went to the cross, our, our sin was imputed to him. It was put on him. A lot of times during communion, we, we read from Isaiah 53. Let me remind you some of those words, because it talks about that imputation of our sin being put on him. Uh, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's, that's imputation of our sin to Jesus. Uh, and what that, what that means is that when Jesus completed his work, then we are forgiven. But there's another aspect to it as well. And that's why we we will talk about a double imputation. Because if it stopped there, what that would mean is that, that we are forgiven, but we still stand before God as a nothing, with nothing to offer to him. And so our sin is imputed to him and his perfect life, his righteousness is then imputed to us. Uh, 
And so then we stand before him as forgiven and as righteous. Now, in Romans, we'll talk about our struggle with sin as long as we're in this earth and all that. So, so um, this is not some kind of a doctrine of perfectionism. But in God's eyes, this is going to sound radical. We're as good as Jesus. <laughs> wow. What? Because of him imputing his righteousness to us. And then he goes on and, and contrasts works and faith. Verse 4, Now to the, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He talks about wages here. Paul <coughs> excuse me, uses something that I was going to say everybody understands. Everybody that works understands, you know, about wages. And he says that, you know, that's, uh, that's not a gift. That's getting your due. Wages are what we earn. If salvation were by works, then we would get what we had earned. But here's the point. We don't want our wages. We don't want what's due to us by our works. We want and we absolutely need mercy, not wages. Because that will always fall short. And so he starts with Abraham. We'll come back to, to him and the whole circumcision idea in a minute. But then he moves on to David as an illustration. Verse 6 then, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin so Abraham would have been acknowledged by all the Jews as the, the father of the Jews. David would have been acknowledged by the Jews as our greatest king. But nobody would have argued that he was perfect. So Paul goes right to David as, as the one who had a huge public failings of his own sin that all of these folks that would have said yes David would have said yes he failed greatly and publicly and so he uses him as, as an example and the forgiveness of God to the point where he, he is called a man after God's own heart. After all of that, ugly, filthy sin, he's called a man after God's own heart. How could he be that? Was it because of his great heart 
No, it was because of his new heart that was given to him by God. And so it points back to not, not a great king, but a great God. And David is, is the king that just points to the greater king that is coming. So, then he jumps into circumcision. And for us, because we don't talk about that a lot either, right? It, it might almost seem out of place to us. But to them it was huge. It was big. For, um, well, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He, it's another, that's another way of saying is it, the uncircumcised would have been the Gentile Christian. Is it just for the Jew or also for the Gentile? For we say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Here Paul is addressing those who even after he had talked about how Abraham was not perfect, he was not saved by his works, he, he is addressing those who might have said, yeah, but maybe it was his circumcision. Because that's really the thing that, that set him and his people apart. That sign. God must have declared him righteous because of that sign. And Paul says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul makes it clear that Abraham was declared righteous and then he received the, the sign of that righteousness. Now, we uh, teach that circumcision is the Old Testament sign of entrance into the covenant community, into the church of the Old Testament. It was that sign. And we teach that parallel to that is baptism. Circumcision is the only Old Testament sign of entrance into the covenant community. And baptism is the only sign in the New Testament of entrance into the covenant community. It talks about uh, it being a sign and seal. Now, when we talk about a sign, th this, is, this is really a key, because they, they might have said, yeah, it was a sign, but, but it was that circumcision that saved him. Think about the nature of a sign. If, you, if you're driving uh, across on I-20, and you see a a sign that says Columbia. Is that Columbia? No. It's not Columbia. If that sign fell down and we threw it in the river, Columbia isn't being thrown into the river. It's just something that points to something else that is the actual thing. And that's what circumcision was, and we are convinced that's what baptism is as well. Now, let me take a little side note here that, that we, we, we mustn't uh, avoid. And that is, 
Okay, well, who was circumcised then? Well, there, there are those that would say, you know what, baptism should only be for those who have professed their faith in Christ. And then, then you get baptized. You profess your faith, and then you get baptized. But who was circumcised? Well, it was those who professed their faith and their children. And their children were circumcised before they ever were old enough to have a faith. That's where we see the parallel, and that's where, why we baptize uh, those who have faith and their children. Back to the passage. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The word circumcised is there just over and over. uh, It seems like when you're reading that out loud. Now, this is going to be expanded on more later, but Paul is basically saying here that Abraham is not just the father of Jews who believe. He is also the father of Gentiles who believe. And he is saying that that to be a son of Abraham is way more than genetics. It has to do with sharing his faith. That's going to be talked about more uh, throughout the book. It's based on a common faith. Now, we're about to come to this table. And I, I, would, I would tell you that Abraham and David looked forward to this. When I say that, I, I'm, I'm saying what this represents. The Messiah, the work of salvation. But, but here is, here's what the Hebrews says about, speaking of Abraham, Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham and David were saved like New Testament believers. It was by faith. They experienced God's grace. And they, by faith, looked forward to the coming Messiah. They never saw him in their lifetime. But nonetheless, with all of their flaws, they lived by faith. I heard a great illustration of how this worked. Imagine for a moment that you're taking uh, 16 children to a ball game. Frightening, right? You know? And these kids, you know, they're hitting each other and putting gum on each other and, you know, doing all the stuff children do. And so what you do is you, you take eight of the children, you know, you're taking them and you're going to pay for them. You take eight of the children, you put them in front of you. You say, okay, we're going to go through the ticket line. 
and you take eight and put them behind you. And you tell these, these first eight, when they get up uh, to the person who uh, needs, needs the money, tell them I got the money that I'm paying. And so each child, one by one, says, he's paying, and, you know, I'm holding the money back here. I'm, I'm, I'm paying for him and so on. And they all, they all get through. And then the ones that are going after me tell them that, that I've already paid. Well, that's, that's how it works if we have, we have um, Christ there in terms of him paying for salvation. The first eight are the Old Testament believers, and the last eight are us. And so they're looking forward to it, to the Messiah. And, and we who come after say, he's paid. He already paid. He paid for me. We look back at what Jesus did on the cross. And we can be encouraged that it was enough for Abraham and it was enough for the sins of David. And it is enough to cover mine and yours as well.